Serduszka, cztery oczy Oj, oj, oj Co płakały we dnie w nocy Oj, oj, oj Czarne oczka, co płaczecie Że się spotkać nie możecie Że się spotkać nie możecie Kiedy chłopiec chorzy miły, oj, oj, oj. I któż by miał tyle siły, oj, oj, oj. Kamienne by serce było, żeby chłopca nie Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio for Brooklyn. Uh, uh, with us today is Claire Van Winkle of Rockaway Writers Workshop. Our hey, hello. Welcome. It's good to be back after so long. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. And, um, with us today, our guest is Jacob Kruger. Jacob has worked with thousands of writers from Academy Award winners to Tony Award winners to beginning writers picking up the pen for the first time. Jacob is a WGA Paul Sullivan Award winning screenwriter, playwright, producer, and director. Jacob's first produced movie, the Emmy Award-winning Matthew Shepard story, won him the Writers Guild of America Paul Sullivan Award and a Gemini, Gemini nomination for Best Screenplay. He has collaborated in original film musicals with Tony Award-winning composers and um, four-time Academy Award-winning composers, as well as a full slate of solo projects ranging from feature films to TV and miniseries. Welcome, Jake. Hi, it's so great to be here, VJ. Thank you, thank you. 
So why don't we start with uh, the evolution of the Jacob Kruger Studio and how that came to be. Oh, well, that's a pretty amazing story. Um, so I had no plans to be a teacher. I was, um, I was first a producer uh, and then a screenwriter. Um, and I was very lucky. I had success very young, and, um, but never in what I planned to be doing. I, I always planned to be uh, actually a, a, to direct theater, but somehow I ended up um, with this kind of awesome career as a screenwriter. And I turned 30, and I realized I was not happy. I was mostly writing for money. I was writing the projects that my agent wanted me to write. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the projects that really moved me, and I was lucky to get some to do something like the Matthew Shepard story. But I kind of reached that point in my career where where it had been a, become about success. Um, so for my thirtieth birthday, I, I allowed myself to uh, direct a play. I rated my savings. I took a couple of months off, and I had the best couple of months of my life. And so I moved to New York actually to direct theater, um, which humbled me. Um, I, I had a great time, produced a bunch of stuff. Um, but it, it, you know, theater, you just don't make money. And so after a couple of years of not making money, I was kind of in a panic. I, I didn't know what I was going to do creatively. And I got a call from a, you know, kind of crappy screenwriting school saying, Hey, would you like to teach a class for us? The money sucks, but it's a lot of fun. And I taught my first class and I realized this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And, um, the studio actually started in my living room. I had two students and I had three friends pretending to be students. And those two students got the ride of their lifetime because they were in a room full of professional writers. Um, And then by word of mouth, it kind of grew over the years. Um, And uh, we now have half a floor um, right by Penn Station. Um, We have 11 faculty members, um, and which is really wonderful because I'm able to to fill in the, the there are areas that I know a ton about, but I'm able to bring in experts like Jerry Prezigian, who's an Emmy award-winning showrunner to, to teach TV comedy, or um, Steve Moulton, who is a Pulitzer Prize nominee. So we have a really tremendous faculty, and, and what we're trying to do is kind of provide an answer to grad school mm-hmm. uh, because so many people, they go to grad school, you spend $300,000, and how are you supposed to be an artist with $300,000 of debt? Yeah, and so true. Then the hardest thing is you, you've got all this debt and you're out of grad school trying to make it after a couple of years of bliss and you don't have any, you don't have a support system. Um, and so what we try to do is turn the grad school model upside down. And what we do is we offer very inexpensive uh, screenwriting classes that really anyone can afford. And if you can't afford them, we do payment plans. And then we pair people with professional writers for one-on-one mentorship. Mm. So um, you get to meet every week or every other week with a professional writer, world-class professional writer, at a tiny fraction of the cost of grad school. And you basically get lifelong mentorship. And we've had tremendous success from our students so it's 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 kind of been a dream come true for me yeah that, that's actually um i mean i i'm yet to get to the whole like we have a space and a floor thing for my workshop but the workshop i run in rockaway the our mission is to make um creative writing workshops available for about the same price as a yoga class so along the same lines of providing that accessibility um without sacrificing the quality of 
uh, you know, of what you're getting. Yeah, because so you want to work really with important. artists. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and also it's just more voices is better. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like you really follow the motto of following your bliss and such. And and how do, how does what are the guiding uh, philosophies or, or values that really drive you forward that that follow your bliss and also if you can expand on that and how um, you know you've been able to just kind of forego certain values but also certain uh, negative things you know about following money or following ambition but rather following your bliss and and how this enriched your life yeah well I think it's hard VJ because we don't always know what's going to make us blissful yeah um, we think we know you know what's supposed to be making me blissful is directing theater but what turned out to make me blissful is running a screenwriting school so and and so sometimes it's hard to know what your bliss is yeah so the way I, I'm a screenwriter so I like to think that if you learn how to live a great life you will learn how to write a great screenplay and if you learn how to write a great screenplay you will learn how to live a great life and they both boil down to a really simple thing which is sometimes you know the big thing you want and sometimes you don't um, so if you know the big thing you want, you want to take a step towards it. And, you know, the mistake that most people make is going all or nothing, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to write. And a lot of the people who do that. Wait, may... didn't you do that for theater? Well, uh, <laughs> what's interesting was, yes, I, I did. Yeah. I, yeah. but I spent eight years building right. up my savings. Mm -hmm. I, I took, uh, two months off. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had projects to go back to. Right, right. Um, and and I, I made a choice with that. And and so yes, eventually you have to make the big choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the invest in something. You, yeah. Well, and you have to you know, if you had a flash flood, you don't get a, a stream, right? You mm -hmm. get you get a lot of water and everything washes away. Don't don't tell yeah. me that. I live in Rockaway, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not cool. Trigger yeah. so, <laughs> warning. Yeah. I believe you want to start with a trickle. Yeah. And and different people have a different tolerance for risk. And so a trickle is something different for different people. But you want to start, you know, if you don't write at all right now and you quit your job, all that's going to happen is you're going to end up overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. um, but if you start writing for seven minutes a day and you go, hey, this is my passion or whatever your passion is, you're, you want to be a ballerina, you start dancing for seven minutes a day. You, you want to play the guitar, you start playing the guitar for seven minutes a day, whatever that thing is. If you start doing that in little, little steps every single day, what you find is that the world starts to actually adapt to you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you thought you only had seven minutes, but soon you're writing for an hour. Yeah. And during that boring staff meeting, you're actually thinking about your script. <laughs> and yeah. what ends up happening is you end up laying the foundation for yourself. It's these little steps that actually end up laying the foundation so that when you are ready to take the big step, you have the infrastructure, you have the artistic muscles. Um, yeah. And the biggest thing with all art is fear. And if if you haven't taken care of the fear in the little steps, it's really hard not to end up paralyzed when you take the big one. Mm. And so I feel like with anything in life, you want to go, what's the thing that I want right now that I absolutely know I want? If it's a tiny little thing, I want to go take a walk in the park. Well, go take a walk in the park. Yeah. If it's a big thing, the small always leads up to the big and the big always leads to the small. So, so it's about <laughs> figuring out what's the thing that's small enough for me to do right now. You know, it's it's interesting because um, as we're talking about before the show, um, I'm a teacher. I teach college, and I think that there's sort of a trend among students to try to skip to the end of things. So, in terms of looking at a lesson, and 
I kind of believe it's sort of this teaching toward testing philosophy and the idea of school being a end full of means instead of um, something that you use and build with. So I think it's really important to emphasize this um, this starting small. And a lot of artists and writers I know get frustrated with that because they think it's supposed to be this big like lifestyle right away. But yeah, starting building those steps and building sort of a discipline, but I, I like to think of it more as integrating, instead of saying discipline, integrating it into your life is a more positive way of I thinking about that. I agree. I, I, the word discipline is a terrible word, word for artists yeah. because most of us are rebels in some way. And so you try, try to discipline yourself and you, you, the little artist inside of you rebels against it. It's like self-flagellation, oh, yeah. but with a pen. <laughs> yeah. So I know uh, one thing, one ex- experiment or one uh, program that happened was National Novel Writing Month, which is NaNoWriMo. And, you know, I participated in that a couple of years and, you know, I got into a lot of the meetups and people were writing there. And some of the people were like, you know, at, the, at those meetups were like, you know, when we had to sit down and do some writing during the, the meetups, they were like, oh, what am I going to write about kind of a thing? Mm-hmm. So even though they, they have such a strong desire to write, it's like that blank page just can be paralyzing. And and telling stories and such and, and the importance of storytelling. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how to overcome writer's block? And, well, and just, starting from, yeah. Just to throw in yeah. before, I, I kind of, my whole thing is the first step to being a writer is learning to write badly. Yeah. <laughs> but That's funny. I, I, I do the same thing. I, I believe... Um, if you want to succeed as a writer or in anything, you've got to get into the volume business. And, you know, you have to allow yourself to be a, a beginner. And, and you know, uh, uh, so I started, um, uh, basically, my boss would knock on my door and say, you know, I want to make a movie about Sacagawea or whatever topic came into his head. And I had to create a story. And And sometimes those ideas were good ideas and sometimes they were bad ideas. And what I learned is that, you know, producers get obsessed with ideas because they have to sell stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you actually start working towards as as a creative, particularly as a writer, but really in any creative field, you realize that you actually have more ideas than you could write or direct or paint or whatever Mm. your thing is than you could do in a million lifetimes. Yeah. And so, you know. Stop worrying about ideas mm-hmm. um, because all ideas are going to lead you to the same place. Like it, it doesn't take the worst idea you have and eventually it's going to lead you to some beautiful or broken or beautiful and broken part of yourself mm-hmm. that you're wrestling with and you're trying to make make sense of. Mm-hmm. And so it almost doesn't matter what door you go through. And even on the commercial side, you can make any idea commercial, turning something in if that if that even matters to you. Um, but turning something into into a hooky, uh, creating a hook for something is is just a technique. It's just a tool. Um, so what really matters, you know, is is figuring out what the thing is, and not what what's the thing that you want to say is, because honestly, it doesn't matter much what you want to say, because there's something inside of you that needs to come out regardless of what your conscious mind thinks you want to say. And and I feel like um, the biggest part of people are always worried about like, it's all my style the same, but if you just think about how something makes meaning. So Mm. the idea of looking for um, not so much concepts or, or finished ideas, but just 
finding something with substance that evokes something. And I, I don't know, for my writers, sometimes that's as simple as saying, pick any object in the room and zoom in and write about it until you can't think of anything else to say and then let that go somewhere. And usually that'll go from uh, writing about the corner of a room to a childhood bedroom or something like that. But if you just let yourself think and let yourself explore, that's the big thing. Exploring any idea is going to lead you into a new story. Yeah. Augusta Boal, the great director, he was the creator of the theater of the oppressed uh, form of, of, of theater. And um, he said, you know, if you want to change the world, you need people to see what they look at, mm -hmm. hear what they listen to and feel what they experience. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing is true for us as writers. Um, we believe that we don't have voices, right? Everybody or, or we believe we don't have talent. Um, or we think I, I used to have talent, but maybe I don't have talent anymore. I wrote uh, that poem. Now I've forgotten uh, how to write. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Every time. Every writer struggles with that. And, and, but what we really lack is, is the, the ability to look, um, yes, yeah. we have the ability, but we've been trained not to. So we see dog, but we don't see, oh, notice that that dog has hair everywhere except one little spot on his nose mm -hmm. or we we see you know funny funny best friend but we don't notice that little detail mm -hmm. and so being a writer is is about learning to look in two different places it's mm -hmm. about learning to look outside mm -hmm. and literally realizing that in this tiny little room that we're in right now there is enough inspiration for a million screenplays. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but also learning to look inside and remembering yeah. that the memories that you have, the experiences that you have, if you started exploring them now, you would never run out of ideas. Yeah. And the fact that um, I, I'm also a writing therapist and I use, um, I, I research how we actually think and speak in poetics rather than in um in what would normally be a structure of, I mean, poetics have a grammar, but anyhow, um, if we look at our memories, we don't experience our memories first as words. We experience them like we experience this room. So writing about this room, unlimited inspiration. But when you think about when you have a memory, if you describe it physically in that same way, if you give a snapshot of it, then that's already something we're showing, not telling, but something that allows you to get past your idea of the thing, what you what you think you already know, and to explore and let yourself discover something on paper because your memory holds more than your conscious mind has processed verbally. And the page is where you can take that experience of the physical world and your experience of the story and let them come together into something new. Also, I'm hearing here is about uh, truth and finding our personal truth, finding our really getting in touch with our truth or getting in touch with being true in writing. And one of the questions I was thinking about was one of our previous guests was talking about uh, writer as a reporter as opposed to a creator, like writers telling things, observing um, the reality and just reporting what it is. But it seems like we're hearing a counter narrative. And I want to expand on that a little bit more that the writer is not seeing the world and reporting it, but rather creating it, would you say? Or what is your opinion on that? Yeah. So it's actually a complicated question. Yeah. Right? And it's important to recognize that this is art. Yeah. And anyone who tells you that it always has to be a certain way is lying to you. Yeah. Um, but there's 
and screenwriting is a little bit different than novel writing or poetry. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately we have to make these things. Um, and in poetry and in novels, uh, even in music, uh, you can go inside. And uh, you can go into thoughts. You can go into feelings. Um, you can go into the inner monologue. Um, in screenwriting, we have to externalize things. Mm -hmm. um, we can only actually experience what we can physically see on the screen. Mm -hmm. um, and that becomes a little less true once you're in production and you have incredible actors who are able to... There's a great moment in, in There Will Be Blood. Uh, in the original script, there's a five-page montage where uh, he realizes that his brother may not be who he thinks he is. Mm. And in the movie, Daniel Day-Lewis does it in one look uh, mm. because he's that good. And he can actually allow his interior to become exterior on his face. Yeah. Um, but, but in screenwriting, on the page, you need that monologue because you need your... Uh, I'm sorry, that montage because you need your audience to be with you. And so... Um, as screenwriters, we're kind of translators, mm -hmm. um, and we need a, a, a higher level of craft. I mean, all art is about craft as well, but uh, we need a—let's not say higher. Let's say different. We need a different level of craft in order to go, okay, I'm observing my emotion right now, and I feel this, or I'm stepping into the character, and the character feels this. And then you have to be able to translate, okay, therefore, what does the character do? Mm -hmm. mm. And then, therefore— because the character does this, what happens on the page and how do I capture that in a visually spectacular way on the page? And, you know, there are there are four different modalities of learning. Um, and, you know, part of being an artist is is learning where you're strong and learning where you're weak. Um, so, you know, th there's kinesthetic learning, which which is people feeling. Um and so there are some writers, and these are the writers who usually think they're bad at structure, mm. right? Where they're, they're kinesthetics. They feel their way through a script or through a novel or through a poem. It feels right or it feels wrong. But it may be hard for a primarily kinesthetic writer to go to an outline. Um, in fact, for a kinesthetic writer, going to an outline might be completely wrong. Uh, or it might be something they have to do very late in the process where they have to feel is it true or not first. Um an auditory writer, oftentimes those are the writers who struggle with dialogue or who struggle with, with action, right? They're really great. They can hear the dialogue in their head uh, and they can feel the rhythm and they or hear the rhythm and they know if the rhythm of the scene is right or if it's clicking or not. Um, but they may struggle to connect to the emotion of the character or they may struggle to actually see it. Uh, and then you have visual learners, of course, who are going to see it. These are the people who think they have uh, tin ears, right? They think that they can't write great dialogue. Um, and, and of course, you have digital learners, but digital learning is interesting because mm. nobody actually learns that way. Uh -huh. And you were talking earlier about teaching to the test, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which is why this world is so hard for artists. Uh, all the teaching is digital, mm. right? Mm. Um, oh, and, not in my classroom. Uh, well, well, <laughs> that's, that's lucky. Well, yeah. and, and this is one of the interesting things about screenwriting. Um, it, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to build the studio is most college classes in screenwriting are not taught by screenwriters. Mm. And most books about screenwriting are not taught by screenwriters. And it's a simple economic problem, which is that screenwriters make a ton of money and they also travel a lot for work. And it's, it's hard to actually to keep them. You can get the retirees sometimes, 
but it, it's actually very hard to to attract and and they don't need to teach so you have a small group who wants to teach right um whereas you have poets saying like pay me yes. i'll do anything uh, you can yeah. study with any poet you want it's incredible yeah. and so you know this well, well i just want to ask you what kind of learner are you and how does you what kind of what kind of yeah, what person me ask that well so we all have all of them yeah right the truth is i can feel i can see i can hear and i can think digitally yeah. right i can plan um, it, it's about understanding what your primary is. Your primary, yeah. Um, and if you if you focus, you're not a digital. In my in my, I've I've been teaching now since 2005. I've met one primarily digital learner, uh-huh. and she was brilliant. And I had to turn everything I taught upside down for her because she had to plan it in order to feel it. Mm. She couldn't feel it until she'd laid it all out. Um, when you say digital, you mean like a technical or um, it's like, almost like how a did you translate that in before? Yeah, it, it, like pre- it's if I take this image and stick it next to this image, then therefore that will mean this, and then so this, almost mathematical. It's Mathemat- almost a yeah, mathematical, mathematical way of thinking, way, yeah. and we all try to do it with outlining, right? Yeah. Um. So because all the gurus that you know, most of them are not screenwriters. The most famous ones are not screenwriters. And so all this teaching is taught as if it were school, right? Right. As if it was math. math and you gotta. What's the purpose of the scene? And module you, number one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and and formula and and all this stuff that really just oh, guarantees yeah, that your movie's not getting made. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what am I? Primarily, the one that comes easy to me. I'm primarily kinesthetic. Um, I I feel if it's right or wrong. Mm. Um, and secondarily, I'm a visual. Um, those are the two that come easiest to me. Mm. Um, which means. If I'm having a tough day, I'm going to go inside and look at my feelings, right? I'm going to go inside. You can see I'm visual as well because I said look at my feelings. <laughs> well, that, that don't get me started on, on metaphors. That's part of what I study. We, everything that we communicate is about, I hear you. I, I hear what you're saying. I see what you mean. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, all, it's all like that. Yeah. So I'm going to go, if I'm having a rough day, I'm going to go inside and, to a feeling because that's my easiest way of learning. Mm. Uh, if you're primarily auditory, you might need to just put on some music that makes you feel like whatever the feeling you need to write or or that sounds like your script. And if you're visual, you might need to go look at some art or you might actually do an outline, but it probably should be on, you know, on note cards so that you could see it laid out for you. Um, so if you're it, if you know your your mo- your primary modality on a good day, you want to go with. Uh, 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 on a tough day you want to go with your mode on a on a good day you want to explore outside your mode Mm. um so you want to focus and it's kind of like lifting weights right it's not going to give you an instant uh bang and it'll make you sore yes and it will make you (laughs) sore but you might just want to practice listening yeah right just really noticing all the sounds around you if you're not very strong auditorially and don't worry about trying to you know, write good dialogue, that's not going to help you. But you might want to listen to two of your characters and notice how one talks slightly different than the other. Um, and so you you want to spend your good days working to build your skills. Um, on your rough days, you want to go where you're already strong yeah. so that um, so that you're always kind of moving forward. So some of some of what you've said, I think, also translates into, and we've had discussions before about genre um, on this show, 
And I know that what I find valuable, especially since there are so many genres are all kind of melting together. Um, and when so you're talking about how poetry lets you go inside. Um, when I teach poetry, part of what I do is I, I disallow that. I say you can only you, you have to write your feelings, but or, or we do scenes where you can only say what the person is doing or saying. Um, I do a, a scene, mm. the doing dishes yeah. exercise. Yeah. So where it's like shared activity and stuff. And even from like before, I think before part, and this is another thing that I notice with my students in a way, everyone is always inside all the time. It's like, I, you know, let's talk about feelings. I relate to this. I even this whole, Oh, I feel like the world is like this. Um, I think the whole idea of looking and listening and feeling is important for every genre. I think everything needs to start there with incorporating the world and allowing yourself to be part of something bigger instead of instead of just sticking with um, like diary writing, which is what a lot of students want to do. And, yeah. Well, I think it's um, it's also why writing makes us better people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, it when we actually look. And I don't know. A lot of writers are assholes. Sorry. A lot of anybody are yeah. assholes. Yeah. Um, but, but the practice of writing yeah. mm -hmm. develops empathy and it's it, supposedly, you know, it's supposed to develop that sense of uh, other yourself and the other, you know, de demarginalize others, you know, yeah. kind of well, and it others, also yeah. depends where you're coming yeah. from. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, if you're coming, a lot of writers come from a place of ego. Right. Yeah. Right. They're not writing because they're trying to tell some truthful story. Yeah. They're writing because they want to be the greatest writer of all time. Or, or because everything is about them. Yeah. And that, that's sort of the mode that we're in. And I'm always I'm like the old fogey who's like in social media has so much to do with this. Yeah. But um, I the the way that students are these days, um, there's so much about. I just want to say what I think instead yeah. of instead of this idea of listening and, and trying to integrate ideas. I think a lot of um, young writers are coming from a space of almost ego. That's almost isolation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, ego is always going to lead you there. Right. Right. Um, in this is this is my experience. Mm -hmm. You know, like when when I was a young screenwriter, I had a facility. Um, what I mean by that is it was relatively easy for me to make you feel an emotion. Mm -hmm. And and so I learned how to manipulate with my writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very good at having people creating emotions in people, mm. um, which is very different from what I do now as a writer and very different from what I teach. And my career really took off when I was able to stop manipulating mm -hmm. and stop making it about about what I could do and start just telling the truth. And, and I don't mean the literal truth, although, you know, I did work on a lot of true life stories, but, um, you know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien never met a hobbit, but he obviously, if you look at Lord of the Rings, right, it's really a book about addiction. And mm -hmm. obviously there was some kind of journey in relation to addiction in his life Right, Frodo had a bigger addict. Eventually, has to bite the ring off of Frodo's finger yeah. for him to let go of it. And, and what's really interesting is then he returns to, and this is really missing from the movies, but in the novel, you're halfway through the third book, 
and the ring is gone. And you're like, what the hell is going to happen now? Uh-huh. And then you realize actually what's going to happen is Frodo's going to have to go back to the Shire and all the magical creatures are going to leave Middle Earth and he's going to have to deal with real life, you know, post-fantasy. Yeah. And so... Now, I don't think J.R.R. Tolkien knew that. Is that, that like, is post-fantasy like after grad school? After grad school, for sure. So, you know, I don't think Tolkien knew I'm going to write a movie or a book, in that case it was a book, about uh, about addiction. In fact, J.R.R. Tolkien said that, you know, had said that. Like, he actually, he was a linguist, and all he wanted to do was write the language of the elves. Mm. But he was pretty convinced that no one cared about the language of the elves. So he decided, what if I take the language of the elves and I stick it into a fantasy? And like all those elvish songs that you skipped over, right, when you Uh read Lord of the Rings, that Uh was actually the point. Yeah. And and this is like uh, hiding your broccoli in the in the dessert or something. Yeah, exactly. And but here's the thing is like a a bad screenwriting teacher and most of them are. Would have told him what, or a bad novel writing teacher, mm. and most of them are, would go, take take the, those songs out. They suck. They're not helping the story. They don't drive anything forward. And he would have lost his inspiration. Yeah. And, you know, and, and once he was through that, he was like, okay, no, actually, it's about World War One. I'm a World War One veteran, and it's about World War One. It's about the Great War, right? And he, then he thought that's what he was doing. Yeah. And, Eventually, it's going to lead you. It's never about the political, even though you think it is. It's always about what the political means to you. It's always about the personal. And and the personal is political. And this is how we create political change is by writing stories where a person is able to see somebody go like, that's me. Mm-hmm. And take that person on, on, a, on a journey that, that opens awareness. So... And that's a long-winded answer to a simple question, but there's no such thing as a simple question. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but the concept is, you have to tell the truth, and you will never know the whole truth of the thing you're trying to to tell. But you have to tell the little bit of truth that you understand right now. And sometimes a little bit of truth is, I don't know why, but I'm interested in the language of the elves, so I'm going to play with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I'm interested in trying to explore World War One through a fantasy story. Mm. So I'm going to run with that. I don't know why, but I was on the subway the other day, and this guy said this line, and I can't get it out of my head, and I don't know what it means. Okay, I'm going to start there. Or I saw this image in my dream that I can't make sense of. I'm going to start there. It, it doesn't matter what door you go through, but it does matter that the door meant something to you. And and I think there's a certain, as a teacher, um, there's a certain point where you talk about craft and you give examples and you give exercises. But at a certain point, it's all you can say is, and then something happens, right? And then if you keep doing this, if you keep writing this, something will happen. I don't know what it'll be because it's your thing and not my thing. But if you keep exploring and going into something, eventually some experience happens on the page and it'll be different for your reader than it is for you, but there's going to be life to it. Well, it depends, depending on the student, because for some students that's going to block them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, a lot of students feel very scared about plot. Right. And Mm -hmm. they feel like I'm not good at plot. And so uh, for a student who feels comfortable with plot, okay. I'm not talking about plot. I'm talking about any idea at all. Cause this, this goes for poetry too. This is, yeah. So, you know, in, in screenwriting, mm-hmm. what, what, what we do is um, 
instead of saying something happens um, because uh, something happens for, for, for a student who's already kind of found their voice, mm-hmm. something happens like the, the opening, like the greatest door ever, mm-hmm. right? Like something happens. Great. It can be anything. I just have to get curious mm-hmm. um, for a, a writer with a strong internal sensor. Um, you, you need to help them allow something to happen. That's going to help move the story forward. Mm-hmm. And so um, what, what I usually say is a character is just like you. They're going to enter the scene with a want, mm-hmm. right? There's something that they want and uh, they want it badly uh, because that's just psychology. Uh, you and I entered this room with wants, right? Um, we, uh, uh, you, you show up to Starbucks with strong wants. And, and underneath that want, there's even more primal stuff going on, right? That's like that, that the respect that you get from the cashier at Starbucks feels like life and death for us. Um, so your character is going to enter just like any other person with, with their wants hot. Um, the only difference is in movies, because we only have 100 pages to get characters through a big journey, those wants are going to be amplified. Um, they're, it, and the character is going to move towards their wants more quickly than we do. We, we wait like 10 years and then we do what we want. Um, characters in movies wait like 10 seconds and go for what they want. Um, and so what we build towards is choice. We go, okay, let your character enter with a want. I don't care what happens. Just make it hard for them. Mm-hmm. And eventually they will be forced to make a new choice. And it doesn't matter what the choice is. It matters that they make a choice they haven't made before. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, for me, this is where screenwriting and life start to match up. Yeah. Right? Is if you want to go on a journey of change, just like your characters need to go on a journey of change, what you need to do is, and it doesn't matter what that thing, you can be big or small, but you eventually have to make a choice you haven't made before. And if you keep take, making little choices you haven't made before, eventually you those choices end up adding up to a big journey. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually this, this, that big journey ends up adding up to a theme. Uh, and, and I actually, I agree with you. Like something happens is actually saying the same thing. Yeah. No, yeah. And, and, and in terms, I wasn't, I'm not talking so much about plot or action. I'm saying that at, at a certain point in writing, you can't technique it anymore. You just have to put something down and you have to go forward. Yes. Yeah. And and then, like there's you know we can we can try to use literary devices we can try to use outlines we but then you actually have to write the thing yeah yeah and there's something that really driving force that pushes you through it that want that desire so Jacob I'll ask you this if your life were a movie if your life up to this point from birth till now or this point what, what would you say and you touched a little bit in the beginning for those people who are tuning in from the beginning but what would be the driving force is it changed or how has it evolved or what would be the want? Well, that, that, the, that, the, the screenwriter. Such a great yeah. question. Yeah. What do you want in life? Little yeah. question. Well, I yeah. actually, it's funny. I did a podcast uh, uh, maybe about a year ago called uh, "A Trip to Cambodia," that, uh-huh. where I actually break down a version of my life uh, as a movie to show people how to build uh, a story out of life. Yeah. Um, and but this is the truth. I can tell the story of my life in 200 different mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. And it depends upon whatever theme is hot for me right now. So, which truth are you going to focus on? That's yeah. right. And that's why, don't worry, you have a million stories in you. Mm. Because, so I could tell my story just in relationship to my desire for love. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I can tell you about 
losing my puppy dog at age five, which is true. He went to live on the farm because he was a bad dog. <laughs> and I, I, I boarding school. I loved him. He, he was my, my only friend. Right. And I could tell you about like the little hole that that opened in my heart and writing probably 30 pieces about that. I didn't even know were about that dog until like years of therapy later. Uh. Right. Um, but, uh, but, and I could build from there to every love relationship that I've had. Right. And tell my, my story in, in terms of like, loves how, a bitch. How do you yeah. build? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. How do you build love when you feel like from childhood, like you're going to lose whatever you love. Right. And yeah. I could tell you that story yeah. and I could take plot events from my life and build around that story. Um, or I could build my same story. I could tell you that I was a little boy who wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, I wanted to put wood paneling in my bedroom so it would look more like a law office. <laughs> okay. I had no creative desires whatsoever. In fact, my sister was the artist. Um, she was an opera singer. And uh, I actually have the only Jewish mother in history who found out her daughter was going to be a doctor and was like, oh, but you could have been an opera singer. <laughs> but yeah. I could tell you that story. And I could tell you the story of how. I discovered that I was an artist and actually through a love story, uh, I fell in love with a person that I didn't want to be in love with. And she was an artist and she opened my world and she also knocked me off course and I went on a, a big You made journey. a choice you didn't make. I made a choice that I'd never made before, exactly. And, and I went on a journey and I learned that I was an artist. And I could tell you about going to Dartmouth and thinking, oh my God, look at these crazy people in the theater department. They're, they are they are spending 40 grand a year to learn something that's going to pay him 10 grand a year. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, that was me as a freshman at Dartmouth. And by the time I was a senior, I was one of them. And by the time I was 30, I was giving up my career to pursue that. And so I could tell you the same story in relation to that. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody could tell you their story in relation to their mother. Uh, so I could tell you my story God. in relation to my mom. Uh-huh. Uh, there are a million ways. Uh, I just actually just did a newsletter for my students that told the story in relation to my brand new puppy that I just got. Um, so you can tell your story in a million different ways. It, it, But you notice that each of them starts with either like a blessing or a wound, right? Mm -hmm. And each of them starts with a character who wants something. Yeah. And, you, and, and when you start to think that way, you realize that plot is not that hard. Um, that plot is just the crap that happens to happen to you in your life. Mm. That the the actual structure of your movie or your your novel or your memoir is is really just choice. It's it's a choice that you make in relation to whatever happens to happen mm -hmm. that actually yeah. gives the meaning to the story. And um, going going with that whole idea of of focusing on a want and focusing on individual individual choices. Uh, do you ever feel, and this is something that I, I sort of observe in my students, and I'm wondering what you think about it, they have a hard time figuring out what, what to leave out. So the idea of, of focus on something, it, they want to tell all the stories at once. Yeah. Mm. Um, the, I'm sure you have a lot of great thoughts about this too. Like, it, There are so many different doors you can use for that. Um, mm. One of the tricks that I use um, is I think of writing as happening in four phases. Um, because everyone's trying to do everything all at once all the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I say the first draft 
is the me draft. And my mantra during the me draft, I'm going to be a little crass, but my mantra is fuck the audience. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm worried about the audience, I'm going to go back to that manipulating place. And my, my, I'm going to lose track of the truth. So I'm not worried about the audience. I'm not worried about the producer. I'm not worried. Can I sell it? I'm not worried about my mom. I'm not worried about anybody. You're it's, really, there are times in your life when you're not worried about your mom. I think everybody's times. always worried about their mom. I say, no, I cannot. <laughs> Even if she reads this and she's hurt, I, I have to just write what I see, hear, and feel. I have right. to write whatever comes to me. Now, and a lot of people misunderstand when I talk about the meat draft because they think, oh, it must be like just the vomit pass. You know, but no, the me draft might be 10 drafts and you probably are going to need a good guide to help you get it out because mm. um, because it's it's the hardest draft. Everything after that's just craft. Mm. Uh, that's just 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 having the right tools at the right time. Um, and and a good teacher can lead you towards the tool you need to use, even if you don't know it yourself. But the me draft, that's the hard part. Right. That's where you get the raw material that you can shape later. Um, so I go, okay, in the me draft, it depends on who me is right now, right? So if if right now I'm, like with the Matthew Shepard story, uh, all I wanted, my me draft, I wanted mom to call her son. That was the only thing I wanted. I didn't think that I could get dad. I didn't think that I could get dad to watch a, a movie uh, about, about this issue. Um, but I thought I could get mom to call her gay son or her gay daughter. I thought I could, if I could get mom to call, right? The, not the bad mom, because you're not going to get her, but the mom who is trying to be a good mom, um, but is estranged from her child. I thought if I can just get mom to call. And so my me draft was about like, if I was mom, what would it take for me to pick up the phone? Mm -hmm. And taking myself on that journey through Judy. And yeah. so, so you're saying that the me draft is, is also learning you. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, this whole, and it's funny, like write what you know, doesn't mean write about yourself necessarily. It means discover what, yeah, <laughs> what it is. Discover what you know. Right. It seems like also it's about being authentic to the, your voice, being authentic to the truth of the screenplay, to the truth of the circumstances. I mean, some people might think when you say that story might think, Oh, just make her call. You're the God of the screenplay. You can just, Make a call, but I what I'm hearing also is that the authenticity of uh, being true to the character, being true to the the circumstances, the imaginary circumstances. Yeah, right? like what will make? What will right. make a call? What Try, will really trying make things out. Yeah, yeah. Right. well, make, really make it organically true. Yeah. Yes, and, and in the movie, yeah. which is interesting, she never calls. I mean, yeah. that's I mean, she actually because that wasn't Judy's problem. Ju Judy was was a really beautiful mom, like, uh, but her problem was that they kind of had a don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. And when I spoke to Judy, you know, and Dennis, who are two really amazing, brave people, um, you know, she was she was incredibly honest. And she felt like she at the time before her son was killed, she thought she was a good mom. You know, her son was gay and and they loved him. And, you know, they they thought he was great. Uh, it was just kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. And it was only later that she realized that she felt like she was tolerating her child rather than embracing him. Mm. And so what I needed to do, and this was my me draft on that particular project was a little bit intellectual, right? But it was, I need to figure out how do you move 
how do you take someone who thinks they're embracing but is actually tolerating and torture them enough mm -hmm. that they eventually realize that they wish they embraced? And right. how is she going to embrace him after his death in a way that she couldn't while he was alive? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the story. And, and that's what, what, what we built. But like I have another I have a play called Talon that's about my stepbrother. And and that piece is it just started with like there's this person in my life that I don't understand. And he's the only person in the world that that I at the time we get along now. But at the time we weren't getting along. And he's like the only nut I couldn't crack. And so it just started with that question for me. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's an image, you know, I got this image in my dream. I don't know what it, but the me draft is like, whatever comes, that's what it is. And then it's learning how to focus in. And this is the trick. So you were talking about, I'm trying to tell every story at once. Right. Um, most writers, when they get scared, they get additive. Yes. Mm. yes. So instead of in an improv sense, instead of saying yes, and they say, and also, Oh, yeah. So most writers get additive as soon as they get scared, like because they think their story isn't good enough or they think whatever image they have or that that image that came or that line of dialogue, it's not good enough because deep down they feel like they're not good enough. And so it's about the me draft is actually about how do you learn how to look at what you have already written that you think is crap? How do you learn to see the beauty? See what's inside yeah. of it That's instead right. of just trying to explain and summarize your idea, like to yeah. see what the the heart of it is. Yes, what is yeah. already in there that is already beautiful and truthful that that nobody but you could already have said. And you find that thing, and then it's about learning the techniques that you need in order to build from that so that the next thing is related to that as opposed to additive. Oh. And this is what keeps you focused. And this is why the me draft, like, you know, ProTrack is our mentorship program. Like the me draft is where we work the hardest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It is, yeah. is because the fear of the writer is always going to pull them out. And so you need that person. You need that person who has done it before and who has that, that right temperament to go. And it sounds like you do the same for your students, right? To go, okay, you have to come back here. No, mm. it's not about adding. It's not about what happens next. It's actually about what's already happened. Yeah. And what does that mean? And what's the furthest from there that we could go? And what's a different way to use that image? And what's the, the opposite of that line? And, and so learning those techniques that we need to build organically from that. Mm -hmm. And wow. that's the first phase of writing. And by the time you're done that, if you really do that right, you'll have worked your ass off and you'll have cried your ass off, even if and you're frustrated writing a comedy yourself. <laughs> and a frustrated yourself. Um, but now you have raw material that's worth shaping. And... Um, and it's going to be a mess most of the time. Well, writing is messy. Yeah. yeah. And that's another thing that um, in school, in college, at least people lose sight of. You have all of these like learning objectives and stuff. And then the, the evaluations that the student fill out. And it, writing is messy. It's a messy yeah. process. Yeah. But one uh, thing I want to also bring up when I'm hearing from all this conversation is that, you know, when we're trying to be truthful, that, you know, something, and we're talking about the facts that things happened. And, and you know, when you talk about the Matthew Shepard story and such. That certain events happen and they and they're just cold hard facts, you know. And then you want to tell a story that you were telling the story about how you wanted the mother to call, but in fact she didn't call, right? That's what I understood. Yeah. That in the well, true she, story, it wasn't her story, problem. She in the movie, yeah. there's no big moment where she calls, yeah, because okay. because she was always talking to him. Oh, okay, she yeah. was 
Yeah. He, it was, it was the the problem. The problem was what's the difference between tolerating and embracing? Yeah. And and the problem of parents thinking that they're embracing when actually they're tolerating. Yeah. And um and so I what Judy hadn't done and this is really interesting. Yeah. Okay? So and because we get caught up in the idea of truth and and it's you have to be very careful as a teacher because if you push too hard people will get literal. Yeah, that's so what I'm kind of getting at, yeah. When I met Judy so um, for those of you who don't know, Ma- Matthew Shepard was tied to a fence and, and beaten to death uh, for being gay. A-, a truly horrible hate crime. Um, and when I met Judy, she had not yet gone to the fence where her son was killed. Um, and uh, th- that was a big deal. And we talked about it, and she was like, I just, she's like, I just can't go. And so John Wyrick, uh, who I wrote Matthew Shepard with, and I, we, we talked about it. And we were like, if she doesn't go to the fence in our movie, then the movie becomes about not going to the fence. Right. Mm. And so we asked ourselves, well, literally she hasn't gone yet. Do I believe that she will go someday? Y- yes, I do. Mm. Um, number two, has she gone metaphorically if she hasn't gone literally? Mm. And I realized... Yes, this woman goes to the fence every single day, yeah. right? She lives at that fence. She is wrestling with what happened to her son in full public view every single day of her life. And so metaphorically, I felt she had gone. And so John and I went to the fence. And what was really surprising, we got to the fence, and the fence is, you know, we imagined like a fence. But the fence is one link of fence it is about eight feet long it doesn't block anything it doesn't mark anything it looks like someone built a link of fence just for someone to be tied to Mm. it is and then we were walking towards this fence and i look up and i realize we're in the most beautiful place i've ever seen and i looked at john and i said it's beautiful i i didn't expect that and we we're both crying. <laughs> and so that was the truth for me. And so I do in my movie, I do send Judy to the fence and I give her my line. And she says to Dennis, who also had not been to the fence yet, she says, it's beautiful. I didn't expect that. And that's the moment where she actually reconnects. Where she calls her son. That's, yeah. that's the moment yeah, where she yeah, calls yeah, her son. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, and it's also the moment where she has to actually deal with for real the horror of what happened and see if she can come through the other side of that. Mm-hmm. Not just the horror of what happened to him physically, but the horror of what happened to their relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was kind of amazing after that movie, uh, my friend Mary called me up and she's like, I'm in New Jersey and I just watched the, 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 the movie with a bunch of friends and, and, and one of my friend's phone rang and it was her mom calling him. And I was like, my movie has been successful. <laughs> whatever whatever yeah. pain I went through writing it. Um, and so these are not literal things that we're doing. They're, they're yeah. emotional things that we're doing. 
But if it doesn't feel truthful, it is not going to work. And you, yeah. you also, it seems like you're saying that you have to work through figuring out whether it's going to be an event or a metaphor yeah. Yeah. and, and trying, trying it and, and working, struggling through that. Yeah. Well, and I would say every event's a metaphor. Well, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> For yes. us, we, we mm-hmm. take the plot that happens to happen in our lives and we attach meaning to it. Yeah. Just Joan mm-hmm. Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. That's right. Yeah. So mm. you're gonna have to come back on the show and tell us about those other three phases of writing because uh, we only yeah. got through the first one. I would love one. to do that, or people could come check out my class, and I'd love to tell them about. It. Yeah, do, great, do, great. do you want to share yeah. your website? Yeah, website, yeah. Or so, so yeah, uh, our website is writeyourscreenplay.com, um, and uh, I have a, uh, a four-week write your screenplay class that's starting up in in a couple weeks. If you want to learn about the four phases of writing and a lot. More really, so this you, is a teaser. If you want to <laughs> learn how to build uh, an organic structure for your character and for your life as an artist, uh, that's really what we learn in that class. Yeah. Um, also, the podcast you have uh, where you go, we analyze different movies, I believe. Yeah. yeah so I have a, a podcast called the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. Um, what we do is we look at a different movie each episode, and instead of ranking it uh, two thumbs up or two thumbs down or loved it or hate it, which always drives me crazy. Um, what we do is whether it's a great movie or a mess, we look at it um, as if it were an early draft. And we mm-hmm. think about what can we learn from it as a writer. Um, yeah. And so uh, a lot of our movies are going to be bad movies before they become good movies. And so uh, the podcast is basically we don't judge, we don't care. I don't care if it's good or bad. I, I try to see everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and if I have a strong emotional reaction to it, even if the strong emotional reaction is I hate this uh, or I'm politically outraged, which I feel often, um, you want to look at like, okay, well, what's actually beautiful about this that mm-hmm. I could build yeah. on? And then what, what tools would I need to build? So um, you can access that on iTunes uh, if you... Uh, iTunes uh, search for write your screenplay or on my website if I have a whole transcript of every episode right. of over a hundred and Thank just so, just yeah. uh, check out rockawaywritersworkshop.org our classes are going to be starting um, not this week but the week after uh, so you can get a full um, description of what our next session it's called the obsession sessions great great so this is Ready for Brooklyn the Truth to Power show Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations for listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the Folk Systems Law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Thanks so much, guys. And, uh, uh, yeah, and also, uh, if you're listening to the... Uh, um, program on your computer free yourself up by going to the mobile apps by readyforbrooklyn.org slash um, iPhone or Android uh, and you'll be able to listen to the show on the go go to truthpower.org truthpower.com uh, truthpower.podomatic.com um, and you can uh, find our archives there thank you so much guys thank you bye thank you thank you to the wire on that <laughs> yeah Everybody Plays the Fool features a wide variety of music with a different theme each week. Check out the archive at 